0: Hello and a very warm welcome to Not The 92 Extra with me, Gregory Clark. As always, I'm your host and I'm joined as ever by Tom Mitchell. I hope you're all keeping well. Before we introduce introduce our special guest tonight, a big shout out to our sponsors, Farrelly's Sports. So Farrelly's Sports were established in 2018 with the vision to reinvent the relationship between the club and supplier. They aim to bring a high-end fashionable approach into designing and crafting football kits. Farrelly Sport provide a professional and premium service at an attainable price point and boasts several partner clubs in their portfolio. Anyway, we're joined tonight by a very special guest and one I'm left with no doubt you're all excited to listen to and hear from. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome him onto the show. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Chris Commons. Chris, thanks for joining. How are you?
1: Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. How are you?
0: I'm oh, very well, thank you. I must say, from a sure. personal perspective, it's a privilege to have you on the show, having watched you as a Celtic supporter for many years. And yeah, just generally, how you have been, what you have been up to in lockdown? Obviously, you've got a couple of young children. I'm sure home schooling's not been too yeah, easy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, three yeah, young children. So, I've um, got an 11-year-old, a 10-year-old who only turned 10 yesterday, um, and then also an 8-year-old. So, it's been very, very busy, very lively. Lots of Zoom calls, lots of, you know, um, different interviews that you have obviously with the the teachers and head teachers and all the rest of that goes with homeschooling but you know what can't complain fully enjoyed it different experience and something that I suppose that hopefully will never go through again but certainly an eye-opener of what you really should appreciate and that's you know being healthy and with your family
0: absolutely and I'm sure the listeners will all agree well without further ado I'm sure the listeners are begging to stop listening to me and start listening to you. So let's get straight into it. I wanted to roll it right back to where it all began for you. You're a Mansfield boy. What was it like growing up there? And what team did you support?
1: Um, when I was a young kid, I had the opportunity, very, very young, uh, I would say between eight and nine years old. Um, my old man used to take me to Notts County as a, as a real young boy. Um, I got involved in um, little teams that would play on a weekend had uh, the chance to play with Jermaine Genus, you know, as a ten-year-old. Uh, Jermaine Pennant, you know, so there were there were guys that were coming through of that stature that were in and around my age group that you knew that were going to be all right. And um, yeah, kind of got the avenue of it was called Centre of Excellence at the time. So we'd play for, like I said, Junior Reds and Knox uh, County. But the big eye opener for me to, to to support a team um, was when we was training with the junior reds and we managed because probably even when I even played for Nottingham Forest, what would happen is you used to get trained, like changed at the um, the city ground. And then you'd walk along the Trent to get to the training facility. Now as a young boy, you know, I, I can remember seeing these players and it was Stuart Pierce, Des Walker, Ian Wone Gary Crosby, Teddy Sheringham. And it was just, these are, you know, internationals and, top top players that, that's where I want to be that's that's exactly where I'm I'm watching my future there and lo and behold you know weren't so many you know years later that I was then that guy walking down probably not with a kid saying that's who I want to be but certainly <laughs> that's
0: RFL. So you mentioned of course your earliest football memories where your dad taking you along to Medellin to see Knotts County um, what would your earliest football memory be in terms of being in a stadium the first match you ever went to?
1: Um, the earliest match that I would have been to. Wow. Um, I would say that would be Mansfield Town. And it weren't as as a spectator. My um, my old man and my mum managed to get me on as a mascot. I've still got the kit right now. Still got the Mansfield kit right now. And, uh, yeah, I was mascot. It was on a freezing night, a cup game. And um, because we we, did, we we never come from a privileged background, you know, we were always scrimped and scraved. And my mum gave a ticket up so that you know my dad could go almost so it was um it was obviously dedication that they had to do very very early on you know save months and months of football boots and all the rest of it but yeah I I certainly was in a, a position where I had two parents that were so dedicated in trying to make me you know play football at the highest level
0: even as a real young kid at eight nine. You kicked off your youth football career at Stoke City How did joining Stoke come about? And did that involve leaving home for the first time?
1: It did, yeah. So I was, at the time I was at Notts County, so I'd have been 15, 16 and looking for what was classed as, you know, the old YTS. So you get obviously a youth scholarship and then go and train as a professional, you know, week in, week out. Um, It was about the time when big Sam Allardyce was manager at Notts County. And actually, I think Jermaine Pennant had already pretty much sealed his £2 million move to Arsenal. So it was a time when, you know, I was always the youngest in the group. So I was, you know, born late August. So I was always almost like almost on catch up. And um, yeah, we had a a sit down conversation, me and my old man. And we basically said, you know, what's going forward is, you know, is Chris going to be getting a, a contract to YT? And they said, listen, we can't tell you at the minute. And I was that kind of frustrated and angry that I got no response after being there for, you know, years and years. I said, Dad, I don't, I don't want to play for him anymore. And he, without hesitation, he says, right, no worries, son. Let's, we'll find somewhere else. So there was a Scottish guy, um, and he was a youth team coach for Chesterfield. And all they, they said to me that on like a Thursday or Friday night was, you can come and have a trial. That was basically it. And my trial was against Stoke City. Uh, we won 2-1. I scored two. Uh, and then the Chiefs scout gave my old man a tap on the shoulder and he went, if that's your boy, I'll sign him up today. And then that was it. The rest was history. I, I went to Stoke City and they trekked me like a king, to be fair. They gave me a one-year YTS and a two-year pro contract, which were like, you know, unheard of. It almost like put me on this pedestal of, we not, not only are you YT, but we think you're going to be that good. And his name was Dick Bradshaw, who was the chief scout, uh, the chief scartner, the, uh, the gentleman that brought me through. And he was an absolute mastermind behind me navigating my way through the youth
0: system at Stoke City. What was it like having left home for the first time? You mentioned that you were treated like a king and you were clearly cut above the rest, so to speak. Was it still daunting having to acclimatise to living away from home? And how how did you find that overall?
1: Yeah, I mean, when I first moved away, I'd have been 16 years old. So, you know, pretty daunting, straight out of school. You have to obviously leave all your pals that are wanting to go to university, college, uh, going out drinking and things like that. I can remember my first digs, my first house of light residence was a, a two-bedroom terrace and I shared a, a room with an Irish guy, Dave, Dave and then there were Danny above me and I was, I was on the lower bunk, so I was like treated, you know, you're, you're the low end.
0: <laughs> you signed your first professional contract with the club on your 17th birthday, as it were in August 2000, what did it feel like to officially become a professional footballer and how proud were your family when that day arrived?
1: Well, you know, you know what, That's the, um, that was the moment that I went from £50 a week to £75 a week, so it was an absolute jackpot. <laughs> <laughs> and this is all while I had my uh, bus pass. This is how I travelled at that age, you know, doing lessons and trying to get, you know, get a car and everything like that. But when you're on £50 a week, it's very difficult to get any sort of loan or bank. You know, any sort of uh, so, yeah. The um, I was just saving money. You know, fifty pound a week, professional, seventeen, seventy-five pound a week, and uh, yeah, just I don't know. It was almost like right now you kind of kick on, and you were rubbing shoulders. So there were me and a there were another professional there at the time, a very good friend of mine, Carl Emery, and um, yeah, we we was the two that kind of signed pro contracts at the same time. We were the kind of the two that always went into the reserves first. We were the ones that trained with the first team and rubbed shoulders with, you know, the, the senior group of the, the players when we were, you know, early on and, and, and young. And um, it weren't until probably Steve Cottrell that when he came through the door, that actually gave youth an opportunity, which, in, you know, for, for myself, there were another you know, center forward called Mark Goodfellow. There were Lewis Neal. Uh, Gareth Owen, Brian Wilson, Carl Emery, you know, all young kids that have come through the youth system and got their opportunity through Steve Cottrell, I'd say.
0: You spent three seasons, ultimately, with Stoke City's first team, amassing five goals and 41 appearances. What players stood out as the best you played alongside in the first team during your time at the club? And what would you say is your best memory of your time at Stoke?
1: It was just, a, you know, I would say my memory is the learning curve. That I I went through that playing against teams playing against men, it's so much of a eye opener as being a I would you know I'm only what five seven five eight being absolutely generous to myself that when you play against real men like going to Cardiff away I can remember Robert Earnshaw scoring goals, and you know the Sam Haman thing and the the volume the noise yeah taller yeah just like this, you know you you're in a business now and I can remember uh, we played Norwich away and I came on as a substitute. And uh, I didn't do any. I didn't do anything too bad. But Jerry Taggart. I don't know if you remember. Big Tag. Yeah. Um, he gave me a, a bit of abuse on the park. And I was, I was, you know, young kid. I went, who are you talking to? Anyway, at the full time, he had me by the neck. <laughs> like, have that. You don't talk to me like on a park. And it was just like a real learning curve, an eye opener of, right. You need to. Not only do you need to train like a man. You know, you need to play like a man. You need to mature as a player. You, you, you know, you're not just a young kid, you're not Roy the Rover, you can't shoot from everywhere, but you still had that kind of innocence, I would say, that you, you, you try things off the cuff. But, um, yeah, learning curve of just big players. And the players that I was in the team with was, you know, Gifton Williams, another huge centre forward, Adiakim um, you know, Clint Hill, another big center off. It was just Ed de Hoy. can you remember the big goalie from Chelsea? Yeah. Ed, Ed, you know, it, it was like 6'5, 6'5, 6'5, Commons 5'7, 5'7. But then it was just, you know, a, like I said, a real learning curve of you with men now, yeah.
0: So we have a question from Joe Devaney from Stoke,
1: age
0: 24. Yep. He was an eight year old. So Joe was an eight year old going to the Britannia every week, and you were his favourite player. Yep. He was absolutely gutted to hear the news in primary school one day that you wouldn't be staying at the club and you rejected the offer of a new extension. Yeah. Given the fact you were highly rated by the club and by the fans, yeah. how did it come about that you left the club?
1: Uh, so the agents and the agency that I used at the time was obviously negotiating my uh, my deal. And because I was, I think I was under the age of 21, which meant if I did leave, because my contract went right up until almost, that I could leave on a free. But because I was so young, it was classed as a, um, like a tribunal fee. And like you said there, I'd only played, what, five, you know, five goals and 40 games. I, you know, I'd hardly even kicked a ball, I had a bad cruciate injury. And um, I can remember being sat in a room with Tony Pulis. He says, listen, you might not play every week and you might not be first choice. I really rate you and you're going to play, and, you know, all the rest of it. There's a contract there. He says, "But your agent's asking for us to sign a um, sign something that if we have an offer over a million pounds." And bear in mind, this is in 2001. That you know that you're able to talk to this club, and I thought, "Well, geez, who's going to pay a million pounds for me? That's crazy." And uh, he says, "Well, we've rejected it, right?" And I, okay, well, you buy me a million pound. I've only, you know, I've hardly even kicked a ball. Um, so anyway, my agent just then said. You will leave on a tribunal for a hundred thousand pounds. It's Stoke are either going to take over a million or a hundred grand in three months. You know, it's they either want you or they don't. And I am like, I don't know, I'm a young kid. You know, you always get told, listen to your agents, and then you've got, you know, like your family members, never listen to agents. <laughs> it's all for them. Do you know what I mean? So, anyway, and it got to the stage where they said, Right, we've got Nottingham Forest, desperate to take you. And I thought, Nottingham Forest, oh my God, this is like my. Dream, this is where, yeah, I've, I've, I've got to leave. it. You know, it's a too good of an opportunity to, to pass up. And I can leave on a free, almost. And I can remember going to the tribunal. I'm sure that it was only £300,000. It was, it was nothing. You know, I left I left for nothing. And I just thought, you know, I never wanted to leave Stoke. I loved it. You know, all my pals were there. I've grown up since I was 15 there. And, yeah, it was just it was just a strange scenario as a young kid when you've got an agent telling you one thing, your dad saying, you know, do best you can. And then I've got all my pals out of Nottingham Forest crazy. Just, yeah, you've got to come, you've got to come. So that's how it unfolded.
2: Uh, so, Chris, how would you describe um, your first impressions of the club uh, when you arrived? And was there a sense that the club was a sleeping giant?
1: Definitely, yeah. Without a question, yeah. There's, there's no one that needed to tell me about the history. You know, you think about them being, you know, double European champions in the, uh, in the 80s. they you know, the, the corridors were littered with you know, absolute legends of Forest, And it was, it was, it had so much history there. And like I said, being a young junior Redding, a young kid, you know, seeing like Pierre Van Oudon, Roy Keane, Ian Wohan, like I said, these, Teddy Sheringham, these players that were coming through were, you know, England internationals, top, top players and, you know, to try and rub shoulders with those. And then obviously I got the opportunity when I did go to Nottingham Forest that on the coaching staff with Des Walker, who I idolised, I thought you were amazing. And, you know, just to have that experience and, try and, I don't know, just do my best for a club that I thought was supposed to be in the uh, in the Premier League.
2: Uh, so Joe Kinnear was the, the manager who signed you. Um, what was he like to play under? And is he the interesting character as portrayed during his time uh, managing Wimbledon's famous crazy gang?
1: You know what? I think I didn't get the probably best out of Joe Kinnear in terms of, like you said, the Wimbledon side of things, you know, the crazy gang and everything that went with that. I think football... Certainly evolved within them 10 years of in being at Wimbledon to Nottingham Forest. There were a lot of expectation on us doing well. We had some top players, you know, Andy Reid, Michael Dawson, you know, David Johnson, Marlon Airwood. We're not, you know, Forest had not long been in a very, very good position with Paul where they could have been Premier League, um, you, know, in, you know, right in the mix there. But, you know, things have definitely gone downhill. They've spent a lot of wages on players that are probably over the hill. Uh, a lot of players that didn't really fit the culture of the club. Um, and hence, you know, within 12 months we got relegated and it was, again, another learning curve but Joe Kinnear was one that I think was um, on the other side of where, you know, with his health everything like that, he was probably thinking about that but I'd I'd never felt like Joe Kinnear had complete and full control over the, the squad there were a lot of players that wanted to leave there were a lot of players that didn't want to be there and it was a strange place to be because obviously when you've got that blend of players that didn't really want to be there and getting beat and getting relegated, it were, it needed a real a real transformation.
2: And you played under six different managers at the club. Um, who would you say got the best out of you?
1: Um, I would, I'd have to say probably Colin Calderwood. I know that, um, you know, Charlie McParland, who um, is a good friend of mine. He's, um, you know, always been like in the periphery on the background as a number two um, But Charlie were there. um, There was obviously a a lot of managers, you know, Gary Megson, people coming in and out, and Mick Arthur took over for, you know, a short spell. But, um, yeah, I'd say Colin Calderwood, he kind of brought this, a bit more professionalism, a little bit more freedom. We had some good young players that were gelling together, you know, you know, Leicester's captain, Wes Morgan, he was coming through. We had Kelvin Wilson, who I played with at Celtic for numerous years and, you know, played Champions League football with him. Uh, James Purge that played, you know, QPR and Newcastle Premier League. So, you know, we had a good, a good blend, a good mix, and it all kind of, well, by the end of that season, I was getting promoted. The likes of myself, Sammy Clingan, um Nathan Tyson, there was obviously um, big Wes, James Purge. They all let us pretty much leave on a, you know, for 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 nothing really.
2: You got 32 goals in 138 appearances at Forest. What was your best memory um, at the club?
1: Oh, the the last day, yeah, getting promoted on the final day. I think going into that final day, we were third. So we needed to, obviously, better Doncaster's uh, game. I wasn't sure if they were playing maybe Cheltenham away or something like that. But the the atmosphere that you got in the city ground from, you know, hearing about the other result and us doing well, I scored on the day. It was just celebrations and, you know, everything that you'd kind of put in them years of getting Forrest back into the Championship. It was just the icing on the cake. It was brilliant.
2: Um, so you made the Braid move uh, to Derby. Um, when did you first hear of their interest?
1: Yeah, well, I'd heard about the interest in January. Um, I knew QPR were definitely interested. Um, so I, I can remember having a bold conversation with Colin Coldwood, um, yeah, in the new year. And I said, listen, Colin, I says, I need... As as well as my agent, we need some concrete here. We need a contract on the table. You now know, you're fully aware, you know, I'm 24. I I can go and speak to, you know, other clubs about if they want my services. You know, I've only got three months left on a contract. You've not offered me anything. And it was all about, well, we're in League One. We're not sure of the budget. We don't know if about championships, get promoted and all the rest of it. But I just wanted him almost to put his arm around me and say, listen, I'm going to build the team round you know, these young players, me, Kelvin Wilson, Wes Morgan, you know, James Perch, Nottingham boys, lads that had knew everything about it. And I never got that from any any feeling. The first time they actually tried to sign, get me to sign a contract, we was in uh, Port of and Colin Calder were in some speedos and he says, right, should we sort your contract out? <laughs> I'm like, my life. you know, it's out of my hands, Colin, you know, my agent's going to be sorting everything out. But it was just that feel of, not feeling wanted. And I just thought, you know, I should have been signed up November, December, January, absolute latest. The fact that I went into the final game of the season playing for Nottingham Forest, not knowing where my future was going to be live, was just beyond me.
2: So what was going through your mind um, when you are about to put pen to paper? And how worried were you about the public reaction?
1: Yeah, well, to be fair, I, I said to Lisa, I said, you know, because Derby obviously were in the Premier League at the time. So they got relegated, but I knew they had some money behind them. I definitely knew that they were going to have a squad that was going to be trying to challenge again to get promoted. Um, I knew they had a manager that was trusted in that. You know, Paul Jewell did wonders with Bradford and Wigan. So I just knew that, you know, that it was heading in that direction, whereas Forrest never kind of committed to any, any, any one of us to build something, you know, for the next level. Um, so, yeah, I can remember getting the phone call and the agent said, right, it's either QPR or Derby. And um, it was, it was it, the, main, the, the main reason. I don't want to make it all about this, but when uh, me, me and Lisa, we went through a, a tragic event in 2008 in February when, obviously, we had a stillborn baby. And we, we then had to then make the decision, do me and Lisa move away to London And have, you know, Lisa's not near a family, a mum, a grandma, granddad, sister, a support network, you know, counsellors and everything like that. Or do we actually say we're going to stay here and then for two games a season, I'm going to have to take a couple of fag lighters at the back of my head. And I said, I'll do that. So that was the main reason for that. They weren't so much I'm desperate to get there. It was just I don't have to move home.
2: Um, so not long uh, after signing for Derby, they play Forest at the city ground. Uh, Forrest take a 2-0 lead before uh, Derby mount a, a fight back to make it 2-2. And uh, you score the winner with 60 minutes to play. That's yeah. Roy the Rovers' stuff in uh, reverse. What was that like? Yeah, that was absolutely
1: crazy. And you know what? The the, the, the abuse that I took, I, I never thought it was going to be that bad. I knew it was going to be kind of, you know, it would be there. But yeah, the me me celebrating that goal was just pure adrenaline of taking, you know, 70 minutes worth of complete abuse from, you know, supporters that I, I idolised and, and was a part of that I knew that I'd, I'd got pals in the, in the, in the terraces themselves giving it me, but I just thought, you know, the, the excitement as winning. Um, yeah. It, 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 it absolutely crazy moment. And like I said, you've got obviously arguably one of Forrester's best goal scorers in um, Nigel Clough as a manager And I can remember actually coming down the A52 and I lived a little bit closer than Derby and they dropped me off on the roundabout, pretty much in between Nottingham and Derby. And I can remember just looking up at the stars, just thinking, what the hell has just happened there? You know, just on my own, just waiting for someone to come and pick me up. It was just, I've just scored the winner against Nottingham Forest playing for Derby. And now I'm almost, I'm in between both, like, you know, supported Forest, love Derby, just crazy.
2: And speaking of Nigel Clough, how did you find working under him?
1: Brilliant, yeah. It brought a a real energy, um, a real, like, kind of old-school way. Just wanted you to do things, like, professionally, but simple. Hated the fact that you couldn't throw, you know, a uh, throw-in, that you wouldn't pass correctly. When he used to join in training, you could see he had so much ability. Just, you know, simple touch, pass, whip balls in and... Yeah, I thought it were, it was were, it were great. And he brought like a a fun factor. The, the things that we did were um, enjoyable. You know, he tried to make it enjoyable. But, you know, there, when you went through a bit of a sticky patch and it weren't going quite right and you weren't quite doing things on the training ground that probably some people would be so accustomed to in terms of team shape and set pieces, which Tony Pulis were – 5 days a week we're doing set pieces we're doing shape of play we're going to be structured and you know Nigel Clough were you know we went on a, a losing game we went on a losing streak of about 5 or 6 games and the lads were like we've got to be doing some sort of team shape today and you got the groundsman to cut out a um, a proper cricket wicket we spent 4 hours playing full on cricket with pads helmets you know bollock coverers and <laughs> it was just mental
2: um so Chris, you were adored by the Derby fans uh, so much that they actually voted your goal versus uh, man United, the seventh yeah. best in derby 's history. How yeah. would you describe your relationship with the derby fans? I love them, yeah, I thought they were
1: superb. You know what a, a proper family club and you, you do get a feel of the, the the supporters, not so much the you know the I would say between eighteen and twenty five that are you know going out and having a drink before games and they're putting a coupon on, and they 'll see you in a bar and they 'll be buzzing. You know, the, the old the old ladies and the old blokes or, you know, the people that actually spend a bit of time waiting for you outside the dressing room and they tell you about their life. And we've been watching Derby for, you know, 45 years. And I had like a real good connection with them. Real good connection. And, you know, like I said, it's, it weren't so much the... The, the you know the hardcore supporters which you know idolize I, I love them you know they're the ones that you want to please because they make the biggest racket down and the, the biggest noise when you score and stuff but you know people behind the scenes the secretary the people on the door the, the you know the woman that looks after the kids behind the scenes uh, everyone that puts in a, you know a huge amount of effort behind the scenes was like i said it was it was an
0: absolute pleasure from day one right until i left so with all that considering What was the key driving reason behind your decision to leave Derby County? You
1: know what? Craig, absolutely, I can remember coming in from training. I came on from training and um, they said, Tom Glick wants to see you, who was the acting CEO or chief executive at Derby at the time. And I went in his office and he says, If you want to just sit down. I went, Yeah, yeah. So I sat down and I was still expecting, I swear, I was still expecting to get some sort of deal sorted with Derby going forward. And he sat down he says, we've sold you. I went, to who? <laughs> he went, Celtic. And I was like, right? He says, so if you want to get your things, you're welcome to go. So I, I can remember walking straight from his office into the dressing room. I got my phone out and I rang my agent. I says, am I, am I going somewhere? He says, yes, mate. He says, uh, he said, I've got Neil Lennon online. He says, I'm going to ring you now. You've been sold. You're getting on a flight at five o'clock tomorrow morning. I'll see you at airport. I was like, what? And I can remember just getting a bin bag and getting all my stuff. And I, I rang Lisa, I said, babe, we're, we're going to Scotland. She went, what, you all, or me? I went, we're all going, let's go. And this is when I had April, who was one year old. Uh, we left at the end of January and William were born on March the 14th. So Lisa were heavily pregnant. I went, our float there never came back.
0: <laughs> Hang on, so... So you were one night you're training with Derby as normal the next minute. You don't even know there's a deal going on behind the scenes.
1: No, not one bit. Not one bit. It was at the end of the transfer window. It weren't even like bid, bid, or they're coming in for you or on the phone to my agent, what's happening? Oh, they're coming in. It was literally like a phone call. He says, oh, uh, they're interested, they're interested. But listen, we'll, we're still talking to Derby. Like, we're, you know, we yeah, coming from training with Soldier. Oh, great, okay. Let's go and see. And I can remember flying up on the Wednesday morning, very early, five, six o'clock in the morning. I had a full, you know, scan brain, back, knees, ankles, full scan, full fitness test. That was on the like the Thursday morning. Uh, did all that, trained Friday, and then I was part of the the weekend for the um, semi final against Aberdeen at Hamden. and I started in that. Yeah, scored after about
0: four minutes. Six it was. <laughs> I was at the game. <laughs> I've been two minutes on, yeah. yeah. Well, cause at the time, it was reported that both Celtic and Rangers were interested in your signature. And So, did you not hear of any interest prior to that? Had you spoken to Neil Lennon prior to that conversation with Tom Glick no, at no, all? Was it nothing like that?
1: And do you know the funny thing is, obviously, I, I'm, it's, you know the tap-up sort of thing. It never happened. But I played with Lenny for 12 months at Forest. Do you know what I mean? So, I knew exactly who I were. I knew you know, I can remember when Lenny came through the door at, um, at Forest, and he had a um, he had this beautiful black BMW uh, M5. And at the time, I had just a crappy car, and uh, I says, oh my life, what what a machine that is! Beautiful." He went, "You can take it for a spin if you want." So me and Wes Morgan got in it, and we bombed it down A fifty two. And that was like, he went, yeah, you can just take it. I thought, this is great. Just flying in this M5 down the A52. It was brilliant. But, so he knew, he knew of me. We played in the same team. Um, and, and obviously, knew him. But um, yeah, just got up there and he rang me. Up. He said, listen, you'll be fine here, mate. He said, you'll be sorted. You're straight in team. And I thought, here we go. Right. One minute, you, you know, I've got a Derby tracksuit, The next minute, I'm given Saltic a tie. And then here we go.
0: It's well documented that Neil Lennon uh, is a very, very good convincer when it comes to players signing for him. He's very, he drills it into players, what it means to play for the club. Were you enamoured with the club after one conversation with Neil on the phone?
1: Yeah, no. To be fair, in, in terms of phone calls with Neil, it was never to sell the club. He didn't need to do that. All that he needed to do was make sure that I was on that flight. I think as soon as you walk into Celtic Park, and I don't know if you've ever been there, as soon as you witness the, the 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 stature of the club, the size of the club, the what it stands for, what it means, the players, the history, um, you know all the Lisbon Lions that have won the Champions League, the you know the supporters, the, the, the most passionate supporters that I've ever played in front of. I, I do I do believe the the earlier. Derby Forest games, the rivalry probably prepped me for what it was going to be like against Celtic Rangers on a, on, a, on a minute scale because Celtic Rangers is like nothing else. You know, it's very, very difficult to kind of gauge it on the, you know, like an El Clasico or, you know, a, a, you know, a proper Derby that is means so much. But for me, it was just incredible. When I first, like I said, when it was the whirlwind of me getting on a flight, doing a fitness test, playing in a game, scoring. My home debut, only a couple of weeks later, was against Rangers. And, you know, we beat them 3-0. And honestly, I went up there and I thought, what is the fuss about? This is this is easy. Like, if these are our closest challenges, this is easy. But, you know, we scored 1-3-0. We're flying through the league. We're doing great. And they beat, well, they ended up beating us in the uh, title that year.
0: <laughs> the first couple of games you played for the club involved a League Cup semi-final against Aberdeen. You scored a chip after six minutes. Not long after that, Celtic play Rangers in the Cup at Ibrox. You scored in that game. Then a week or so later, you play a parquet then a team that beat Strangers 3-0. What was it like those first few weeks? Because not many players have that whirlwind start to the Celtic career.
1: No, definitely not. And I'll tell you what, it's probably the, the only time that I have ever stood in the middle of a centre circle during a full game when the referee's not stopped it. And all I could do was just watch this scene that was... In front of me, and it was the Celtic supporters, and I'd never seen it before in my entire life. But every single supporter had turned the back and done this like kind of bouncing thing, and the stadium was bouncing, and it was 3-0. I'm just looking around thinking, Wow, what am what, what am I involved in? This is like the best thing I've ever seen, the best experience, the best feeling. Just you, you never wanted to end. It, it which just it just filled you with so much adrenaline and joy and you wanted to be a part I didn't know whether I wanted to be on the pitch or in the stand myself, do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it was crazy. It was incredible, brilliant support. And you know what? It was like that home and away.
0: Incredible. What was it like to score as a Celtic player at Ibrox?
1: It was strange, really, because, again, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into that early on. Um, and I knew they were fierce rivals, but, you know, as an Englishman coming up, you know, through the weeks and the video meetings that we do with, you know, with the the team and the things that you'd see, like I said, there were countless kind of encounters that you'd have about the Lisbon Lions and seeing Billy McNeil come through the reception door, you know, the big Caesar, the captain that lifted the European trophy. Then you would find out about him, the kit man with John Clark, who were part of that Lisbon Lions. and. It was it was like a not initiation, but it was like an education of. You start you start here, and you're going to find out so much more. It weren't like we're going to plant all this information on you within the first week, and then you're going to completely get it. So for me going to Ibrox and scoring, uh, I don't know if you've even seen celebration. I thought easy street, right next one, get back to halfway line. I didn't hardly celebrate. I was just like, well, brilliant, let's go. Like looking back now, I'd have probably gone mental. <laughs> but, <laughs> But I just find it, I don't know, just easy.
0: It's widely accepted that the 2011 league title was lost away to Inverness, Kelly Thistle, a game which you scored twice. Yeah. How did you feel on that gruelling five, four 5 four, five-hour bus journey home after the game, knowing you now had to rely on Rangers dropping points?
1: Yeah, and you know what? Throughout that whole season, I think Rangers, there was a time we were training down at Lennox Town, which is just around the corner from Celtic Park. And we'd heard that Dundee United had either scored to get a draw or they, 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 they'd won and we were doing doggies at the time we were just trying to you know um, just sharpen up on our speed and it gave you an extra yard it's, it's you know shine down Rangers are losing or Rangers are Dundee have scored Dundee have scored and you're like yes now I've got a chance so I knew exactly getting on that bus that we'd, we'd lost that initiative but not only that we we um, we dropped points at Ibrox as well. Can you remember when big George Osamrass missed the penalty? So, it weren't so long ago that he'd been up there and scored the penalty that, um, against Gregsy, But, yeah, the big, uh, the big goal is scored, well, saved George Osas. So, there, there were plenty of points throughout that season where you could have pinpointed it. But, yeah, the Inverness, Caledonian, Fistler one was one where you came away because, first of all, you expected to win. And, second of all, when being beat, I'm sure, did we concede three or four? It was 3-2. Yeah, it, it was just, I don't know, just it completely un, unlike us. You know, we'd, we'd been doing well, I think, defensively. We looked sound enough. But to concede three to an Inverness team, which we should have been, was, uh, yeah, a bit of a kick in the teeth.
0: So that title was lost. However, good times were ahead. The summer of 2011 saw the, the arrival of a certain Victor Wanyama. How impressed were you when he first arrived?
1: I wasn't. No, I wasn't. Um, I can remember we did, a, um, we did a possession thing. And me being a number 10, I was always in and around like the holding midfielder. Victor was only young when he came to us. I think he played in the Belgian League. Not really played a great deal of football. But, um, yeah, he wanted too much time on the ball. He seemed sent, he, he sent to have this kind of very, very laid back, almost lazy, but not lazy. Because he was a, a tremendous athlete, very physically strong. But um I found it easy that I could take the ball off him or read that he was going to do. It seemed like he needed to control the ball and look up for ages to find out what he wanted to do. I think in hindsight, probably looking back, he just wanted to make sure of the pass rather than trying to do something silly, but you know he he soon picked up the you know the physical side of things, and he was born to do that you know you know beast of a man very, very physically strong, good athlete. And then, as soon as he got the speed of knowing that he needed to, obviously know what he needed to do before he picked up the ball, he started then being a, a, a huge impact on the game of not only how he pressed, his tackling, um, his authority in midfield. You know, it was like a, a driving force. He gave you this energy, and a, you know, his aura as well. You just thought, you're going places, you are. You've 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 you've, you've, you've arrived and. There were no bigger moment than when he scored against Barcelona that you fought right. And you know what? For a young kid that were playing at Celtic Park in front of six, 7,000 against Iniesta, um, Xavi and Busquets,
0: I think he held his own without a question. You didn't feature as much as you'd hoped in the 2011-2012 season due to injury. How frustrating was it when you're on the sidelines watching a boy storm to the title?
1: You know what? It's it's very difficult because, like I said, you know when you find out about being at Celtic, it's not so much that you want to be a part of it. Of course, you want to play. Every footballer wants wants to play and wants to be involved and scoring goals and everything that goes with that. But I have never known a group of guys that have been so happy. I'll throw in that you know Narm again, uh, Paddy McCourt. Not always played week in week out. You know James Forrester, a young kid coming through, never played week in week out, but. You know, when you've got a run in the team, I've never known a group of players in a dressing room that actually wish you all the best to win play to your ability, knowing that potentially they're not going to play. I just find, you know, because usually I'm, you know, all the best, mate, but I want to play. At that, that club, certainly in them couple of years when Neil Lennon were just um, getting things going, we had a real, real good bond, a real good team spirit. And I don't know, we wanted to win. I think we wanted to avenge, obviously, losing the title that year and try to get something going. But once we got something going we had some players through the dressing room that were a
0: real, real top players, we made a huge impact on Europe as well. It was a good season for you. However, it wasn't all plain sailing. You were sent off at Tynecastle. Uh-huh. What's your memories of that?
1: You know what, I've only been sent off twice in my entire career, and both have been at Time <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know what, That again, that was just frustration. Not played, been injured loads. Um, I think we'll get him beat and Tynecastle's is a very very hostile environment the pitch is relatively narrow the supporters are right on you and you know when you're coming up to Tynecastle on the bus you know they have got some fans there that are let's just say not very nice and they, they, they do go out of their way to make that known Um but yeah the um I can remember yeah making a huge lunge and just being in a real bad place and so disappointed and yeah, ended up getting a red card. But I also, I got sent off there scoring a goal as a celebration because I was so close. And I thought, oh, God, I've only been sent off twice in my entire career. And it's both been at Tynecastle. So, yeah, I'm not be going there any soon.
0: <laughs> you made a very, very good impact that season. I was at the game, probably beat, well, certainly beat Kilmarnock, like 6-0 to win the league, and you were excellent. You also played a few weeks later against Rangers and scored... Did you think that was a propellant for you going to the next season where you knew there was a chance to play in the Champions League?
1: Definitely, yeah. I, I, when you're involved in playing for Celtic, once you've got your foot in that starting eleven, and you think, right, I've got an opportunity now to stay here, it, it, it does, it makes you better. You want you want to improve. And I think I was maturing as a player. I think I was getting to know my role a little bit more. I think when I first came into Celtic, I was more classed as a a left winger, then I was a right winger, then it, the, w- the winger thing then got almost obliterated and you were two almost like false number nines, you know, false tens, you know, in that pocket. So we had Emilio Izagiri, which was an absolute athlete down the left-hand side. We had uh, Adam Matthews and Mikel Lustig, a great athletes, great professionals. So they gave the whip, really. You know, Scott Brown, Wanyama, Ki Sung Young in the middle gave the reassurance and then it almost gave a reign for the likes of me, Stokesy, Sammy. Um, trying to think who else who would have been. Him. Obviously, Jamesy. But yeah, it gave us a, a free reign of trying to be, um, you know, top players. Just express yourself, enjoy yourself and try little things. And, you know, being in that group of players with, like I say, me, Stokesy, Hoops, Georgios, uh, Forrest, it was would, it would, a joy to play. Best, best time in my career without a shadow.
0: Well, you did help the team qualify for the Champions League the following season, scoring in Sweden against Helsingborgs after only a minute. When you qualified for the Champions League, what was the whole experience like? And did you think back to times when you were growing up in Mansfield, kicking a ball about the streets with your mates, thinking, how have I done this? This is amazing.
1: Yeah, I tell you what, the, o- the only time you think, wow, I'm actually here, is when you hear that Champions League music. You know, when the kids are behind you, throwing the ball about on the centre circle... I can remember the camera going down, you know, and it pans across, <laughs> and I'm thinking, right, I've got to act as if as I'm meant to be here, cool as hell, knowing full well what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> yeah, just like cool as hell, like, and I, I can remember watching it back, thinking I must look like a, you know, an impostor here. There's no way Chris Commons is meant to be playing Champions League football. But, uh, yeah, it was just it was a surreal experience, and. Throughout the Champions League games, or well, certainly the, the European games, you, you mentioned the Helsingborg one there, but also, you know, the Shakhtar game as well at Celtic Park, another game that I scored in, that I just felt we, that's where we belonged. Once you got the, the taste of it, it was like, I don't know, I went on to a different stature in what I, how I felt going into games. I was like, give me the ball, I'll do it.
0: In terms of that campaign itself, you were part of the team that broke the famous Champions League away day hoodoo in Moscow. Yes. Could you? What was it like in the dressing room in the Luzhniki Stadium when Sami, well, after Sami had scored that famous header in the last minute,
1: it was phenomenal. And you know what? I've got a story about this Moscow thing because Neil Lennon actually uh, was in the hotel. Whenever you get a phone call, and he and he'll go, "Chris, it's Gaffer. Come and see me." You think, <laughs> "What have I done?" Or what's he going to tell me? Because this is not going to be good either. Or I can remember chapping his door and I walked in. He went, come and sit down. And he said, listen, I'm not going to play you tonight. And I went, why? He says, I'm going to go with Jamesy. You know, he's a bit younger, a bit fresher. got a bit more pace. Might hit him on counter-attack. He says, how do you feel? I says, I'm devastated. I'm absolutely gutted. I said, I'm almost going to greet you. I said, I feel like I'm going to cry. I says, I can't believe you're thinking about dropping me. He went, you feel that bad? I went, yeah, devastated. He went, right, you're playing then. <laughs> And, and do you know? it, you know what he said? He went, "Don't let me down." I'm thinking we've not we've not won away for God knows how long. Don't let me down. So I thought, oh my life. And to be fair, I played most of that game literally as a right back. And Lustig were a gentleman that night. He proper talked me through it. I, tried, you know, I worked on my defending. I was like, and we got the result. And it was just, you know, what what will be will be. But it was great, great feeling. Being in Moscow, it was just another incredible experience. But you know, to get them points on the board. And, you know, you felt like, right, okay, we're not just a young team that's doing all right domestically. We can come away to these teams and, you know, stamp our authority. You know, scoring three goals away from home is phenomenal.
0: Of course. Celtic 2, Barcelona 1. You must have been asked this question a million times, Chris, but I need to ask you, when Tony Watt puts that chance away, do you think we could get a draw here? (laughs)
1: I'll tell you what, there was one time when... Playing against Barcelona was the biggest eye-opener in terms of, I don't know, a philosophy of football where we are never, ever, ever, no matter what situation on the park, we're going to kick it out and give you the ball. We'll be in our, you know, in the corner flag defending it so we can get to our goalkeeper and then we'll come and attack you. And I can remember it was getting into the latter stages and we was in the far, our left-hand side and I thought, he's got to tap it out, they, you know, they've got to kick it away, they've got to lump it, you know, they've only got minutes to go. And they did this little triangle thing, and then I, before I knew it, went wide to Sanchez or whatever. And you got Messi bearing down on and goal, and I thought, no, do not let this happen. We've come too far, we're too close. It's like, no. And it just obviously, the big holy goalie, the, you know, the great wall himself, were phenomenal that night absolutely phenomenal. So, between obviously Tony Watt, Victor Wanyama, and Fraser Forster, we managed to get a result.
0: When you, when they went to the last game, that. Sets a good foundations to be in a chance of qualifying from the group, which is a rarity if you're Celtic. When you are taking that penalty against Spartak Moscow, what's going through your head with a silent stadium, a silent Celtic Park? Thinking, I've got the world on my shoulders here. What was going through your head?
1: Um, I need to go high. I knew I, I knew I was going to go down the middle because by that time I was the, you know, designated penalty taker. So I used to go, you know, I used to go pretty low, low to the keeper's left. I'd been high, I'd gone top bin. I always tried to keep it guessing because whenever Steve Wood's the goalkeeper coach, it'd give me a, like a, a goal sheet of where I've been, you know. So you'd see where the ball's, you know what you see kind of on Sky Sports. And you'd say, right, where are you going to go today? And I'd say, bottom left. Um, yeah, right, goal, goal is all right that way. Good, good. top, high, right. I'd go, right, okay, yeah. And then the Friday before the game, I'd get the goalkeeper to stand in the goal. So whether it be like uh, Leo Fasan or you know, even big Fraser Forster, I used to tell him where I was going to go because I didn't want it to be a fluke where they went the opposite way because I'm sick of hearing, you know, commentators, good penalty. It's not really a good penalty because the goalkeeper went the other way. I wanted my penalties to be unsavable. So usually I would say like a, a one metre by one metre in both top corners and certainly above the goalkeeper's head. If you can get there, no one's saving that. But it's very risky. And I can remember I missed a penalty. Like Going back to my derby days, I missed a penalty against Crawley in the cup. And I went down the middle. I don't know if you need to see, see Lionel Messi's the other night against Paris Saint-Germain. Very similar. I went down the middle, but the goalkeeper saved it with his legs. And I thought, that is not happening ever again. No chance. I am going to go high. I need to go at least two metres high to get in there. And I don't know if you've ever seen the picture, the goalkeeper and the goal, it, it, I felt like his, his fringe were touching the crossbar. <laughs> it's like this. And I thought, oh my life, like, I need to go high. He's, he's he's you know rattling crossbar. I thought, right, I need to go high. But on and on heart, as soon as I hit it, I knew I ate it too high. Because I, I like, pardon, can I can I swear? Of course you can. Pardon my French. As soon as I hit it, honestly, as soon as I hit it, I thought, shit. Right. And then it hit the ball, the bar, and I'm like, huh! and then it went down, and then, oh, like, thank the Lord. Oh, my God. Like, Well, to be fair, I was probably only about six inches away from it being absolutely perfection. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the last 16 tie, then, after qualifying from the group that famous night at Parkhead, the last 16 tie against Juventus was a slightly sobering experience. I'm sure the listeners would love to know. Did the boys believe Effie Ambrose should have played after travelling overnight from Africa?
1: Um, to be fair, I thought it was because my initial thought was Effie would be absolutely fine. You know, he's an absolute athlete. He's, you know, there's no alcohol in that sort of sense. You know, he's not a. You know, he's got a family. Um, I thought the travelling might have took it out of his hands, but there's no question on earth that Effie Ambrose. At his best, and made us a better team. He'd he'd take the risk to come out and break the lines and make passes into the midfield that you know split the midfield. And you know he's shown that against Barcelona. You don't you don't play against Alexis Sanchez, Cesc Fabregas, and Lionel Messi, and you know do what he did. I thought you were phenomenal. But the um, I think the backlash was over that, and it kind of infuriated the lads because all our all our game plan was, we're going to put them under real pressure because they will kick it long. And we knew this. And every time it went long, it went over Effie's head and they went through and scored. So.
0: <laughs> You're on record previously having said that Gary Hooper is the best player you've ever played with. Yeah. What yeah. makes him so special?
1: His understanding, his, uh, his lack of selfishness, his awareness, the sort of, telepathic stuff that you, you, you can't teach. It's, it's all right for me to say, listen, if I make a run there, you're going to pass it there. Hoops just knew by a look, a little flick inside, a one-two. It knew if you were in a better scoring position, he would pass it. You know, I think if you look at the, the pass that he plays me or the dink against McGregor, like in my head when I was running through, and I swear to this day, when I was running through, I'm thinking, play me, mate, play me. But I've paused it at every angle. It's not even on. I don't even know how he knows I think it's on. But he plays it it's at such a perfect pace. I can just take a touch, Carl Bottle is out of the way, and then I'm in. And sent, like I said, it, when you're in that moment, it feels so easy. It's a breeze. But looking back, I just think he did well to see that. But you know, goal scoring. I, I don't know if it was um I don't know if it was the final against Hibs And he missed a one on one. Am I been, oh no? Like, Monarch, was it? No, it, there was a game against Ross County away and I played him in and it was one-on-one and he missed and he went for a corner. Keeper saved it and I, I can remember going up to him and I went like dead serious. I went up to him and I said, that's the first one-on-one I've ever seen you miss. What are you playing at? Like, I just expect you to score. Just put it in the back of the net and he was like, sure it was, sure it was. Just get on me. <laughs> yeah.
0: Do you think he, he obviously went on to play for Norwich, Sheffield Wednesday and now he's playing in India? Did you think when he left Celtic he was going to go on to even bigger things than what he eventually did?
1: Not with Norwich, no, no, never. When he went to Norwich, I thought um, you're going to have an off decent. I don't know pay packet. You're going to, you know, but Norwich, you're going to be fighting relegation battles. That's why I thought, you know, it's the similar sort of thing that if they went to, I don't know, like a Brighton or West Brom, you know, someone that of of that stature never went to, um, you know, like a Southampton, like a Virgil or. Fraser or um, Big Victor Van Yama. At least they were in and around kind of the top top half. You know, they had Riccio Puccino, didn't they? And that they off, you know, you thought, you got a chance there. With Norwich, I just thought this is going to go one way or the other. Then they ended up spending about, another what, 10, 12 million on another striker. that I know injuries didn't play its part, but, yeah, Coop's career, along with Chef Wednesday, is just petered out because in, in his heyday, when he was scoring for Celtic for you know, in the Champions League, he was on the verge of getting a, you know, a senior England call-up. And if, I think it has, if it had stuck with Celtic for at least another 12, 18 months, he wouldn't have been going to like a Norwich, he'd have been going to, you know, like a West Ham in top six, an Everton, a proper good outfit, yeah.
0: Scott Brown, when he retires, will be broadly considered a Celtic legend. How would you describe him as a captain?
1: Yeah, role model, yeah. Couldn't I ask for a better captain. Just a phenomenal, phenomenal guy, and I think everything that is. What what makes Scott Brown, I would say, so special is. is, is I would say like his his mindset, to for, for, to forget all the. Real nasty stuff that's happened behind the scenes, you know, losing his sister, the abuse he gets from that, the fact that he's apparently a Rangers supporter, the, the abuse he gets for that, and. He's is, is the guy that you, I, I think, if you, if you don't know him, you, you love to hate him. You know, people love to really put bad tackles on him. They, you know, they, they call him out. They, you know, he's the target for a hell of a lot of, of abuse. And I've never, honestly, I've never met a nicer guy in terms of his, his personality, his charitable things, his things that he's done for me and Lisa, charity-wise. Um, his selfishness to put everyone first before himself and just an eagerness to win and a a mentality of strength. And to be fair, you know, when we did the huddle, if he weren't giving the team talk, you never really got that sense of, you know, when he was there, and I can remember old phone games and uh, playing against Rangers, that I didn't even know what he was speaking. didn't even hear what he was saying, but, you know, the noise levels were so much. But just looking at his shaved head and his bulging eyes and, you just thought, it means that much to you, mate. I'm going to run through brick walls for you and do, do everything that's possible because I, not only do I expect it from you, I know it's going to come that way and I just think it will go down as arguably second, well, yeah, probably Celtic's second best ever captain behind Cesar, Billy McNeil.
0: The following season was an incredible season for you. Mm-hmm. You were top goal scorer and played again in the Champions League. Did you feel an extra pressure to weigh in with more goals, especially as Hooper had just left?
1: No, I didn't know. Not, not in the sense of that Hooper's left. I've got to step up. Um, It was a remarkable year, but I don't know how it happened. I've always had an eye for goal, but I said, you know, the long distance stuff was probably the things that people would, I don't know, probably remember me by—just long, long distance efforts and long distance goals. Whereas this year, I, like I said, I was designated penalty taker. I was taking penalties, and then I was scoring goals that weren't in my nature. stuff, stuff that kinda of, that I'd worked on in training that I just got a initiative, I got a a feeling for it. That every time I went out on the park I'd score a goal and whether that was just dinking a goalkeeper or, you know, a little flick at near post, a little header, just instinctive. I overnight I became a natural goal scorer, which for that year was everything I touched turned to gold. Yeah, it was just phenomenal. And I wouldn't have been able to do it if I didn't have the Support of the boys around me. You know where I wanted the ball. You know what I expected from them, and you know they—they they truly took me to that ne- next level because I never, you know, tried to do anything on a personal level. They were right there with me, making me better.
0: You mentioned there, of course, the the squad ably abetted you to get the goals you did. Yeah. What was your first impressions of Virgil van Dijk?
1: Honestly. He did one training session and I thought in my head, why the hell are you here? <laughs> and I, and I, was, I was at the side of Parks and Lenny, right? Oh, sorry, Gaffer. <laughs> 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 and, I, and I can remember Parks goes, he's decent, isn't he? And Lenny went, you're not here for long. Like, wow. Wow. What the? You know, to have a centre-off, to have that much technical ability, that stature, technique, free kicks, passing, strength. He could run, he reads game. it comes out with ball, he scores goals. Like I'm, I'm looking at like a FIFA thing of creating the complete centre-off and he's just arrived here. And it's like, how much do we pay for him? Oh, they're million million five or something. Just, just like, what the? But Lenny, Lenny's favourite story, obviously, is, listen, enjoy it while you're last, you'll not be here long.
0: Phenomenal. I think if you ask most Celtic fans what's one of the first goals they think of when your name is mentioned, it's the opener, opener against Shakhtar Karagandi. Right. So uh, what, there's two questions I've got here. Firstly, what went wrong in the first leg?
1: What went wrong? To be fair, we, I nearly put us in the lead against them as well, I'm sure. I absolutely rifled one at the ball that would have been better than that, I promise you. <laughs> Um it rifled the bar, but yeah, artificial pitch, time zone, their noise. They had them clackers, you know, the just racket, just constant noise and just they kept having long throws anywhere inside our half, long throws, long throw. It weren't a football match, it was like it was just I don't know. Everything went against us. We were, didn't play defensively very good. We didn't really execute as crossers and finishers, and we came away thinking, right, we you know, 2-0 with We've made a bit of a hash of that, but honestly, in the media office, flight back home, I thought just getting back to Salt Lake Park because I know if we can get one, then the pressure will be on and then we can really kick on. I think the most important thing in that game was getting the first
0: one before half-time. We needed that. So, yeah. The second question was, did the boys as a collective truly believe they could turn it around at Parkhead with the fans roaring them on?
1: No, I mean it's a good question, but it's not a question you'd you, you have with your teammates. Do you think? Do, do you believe? you know what I mean? It was—it's it's an inner—and in, I felt angry because um, I don't know if you remember, but the head coach of Shakhtar yeah. had already came out and basically said he's got his flight booked down to the Champions League draw. And you know what? I swear, you know, the Gaffer and Pogs didn't even do a team talk. They got the paper and went. That's all you need to know. He's booked his flight. I thought, right, you the only one way you're flying it's that like Europa thing, don't you? You're not going to Champions League. But yeah, exactly. So we got the, um, yeah, we got the first goal and that gave us momentum and then it was just a barrage and rain of, obviously, attempts from ourselves. But there were a very scary moment during that where they, can you remember, the, the crossbar?
0: <laughs> the very end, yeah, yeah. I thought, was it Adam Matthews cleared it off the line? It might have been Adam
1: or Effie. They were, they were there anyway. They were, Trying to do the best, but you, you just thought maybe that'll be our uh, that'll be our time. But yeah, then the latter stages, see them sort of goals, them sort of nights, is what I don't know. Maybe in five, ten years time, a new coach would be saying this is this is what Celtic's history about. You know, watching the famous Barcelonas back in the day and the AC Milan's, the Juventus, and then next minute it's like right, this is this is Celtic Park. Come and watch your game here.
0: How surprised were you to hear that Neil Lennon had stepped down at the end of the 13-14 season?
1: Yeah, I was very surprised. Very surprised. I texted him as soon as I found out and I just said, you've been a, you'll always be a role model, father figure, a a guy that gave me so much and gave me all these opportunities. And, you know, you've sorely missed, forever missed. And, you know, it was a, a proper... For a moment, for myself, I thought, where, you know, where's this going to go? Because he'd been such a spearhead of Celtic through and through. You, you know, think about the bomb threats, the, you know, the bullets, the pitch invasion where the guy nearly, you know, attacked him at Time Castle. I just felt Mr. Celtic, he is Mr. Celtic, and massive, huge amount of respect for him and what he'd gone through to, you know, in, in that dressing room, we'd been, I felt like we'd been through so much and thin and ups and downs and yeah, just a real blow. Just like, can it get whoever comes in? Can it get actually get to that level where we do a Barcelona that we do, you know, compete in the last sixteen? Is, is it going to be like we're going to do doubles and trebles? It just didn't know it was just a an era of
0: uncertainty. In June 2014, Ronnie Diala is appointed as manager with John Collins as his assistant, of course, a former player. What was your initial reaction when the news broke?
1: Well, completely unknown. Obviously, I knew John Collins. Um, Heard all the stories that had gone before it with Ronnie in his underpants on some Norwegian pitch. (laughs) um, Yeah, but, you know, by all accounts, come from good stock, and, you know, he was tarted as being maybe even the next Man City manager at some point. So... You know, we gave them the absolute utmost respect when it came through the door. Different training, different uh, training regimes, different way we played. Um, Yeah, just everything got changed. Not not drastically, but enough to give it a shake-up. But yeah, then we had new players that come through the door. And um, without a horrific, probably, refereeing decision against Inverness, we could have been arguably a treble-winning team that year.
0: It's rumored, it was strongly rumoured that Ronald Diala came out with a plan to radically change the fitness levels of the players. How did the players react to this? And did their attitudes change over time as the team became more successful in the first season?
1: He did radically change it in, in the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, you know what? That's one thing that Scott Brown clearly made evident to when Brendan Rodgers came through. We need to be fitter because the the diet regime that we were on was was obviously the, the, there was no carbohydrates. There was no, you know, there was no rice, no pasta, no potatoes. You could have a little bit on game day, but if you, you know, if you were eating that, there were loads and loads of, I've never known so much mayonnaise, hollandaise sauce and chuffing, like cream, whipped cream. And it was just a very, very high fat diet. I've never been so thin in my entire life, but like everyone we're either falling where we were getting, we, we couldn't run. And, um, you know, 60, 65 minutes breathing out his ring. Um, or we wouldn't train week in, week out. And Scott Brand, he, he's the one that needs to train every single day. He needs to play every day, train every day. And he couldn't do it because it wasn't physically possible for him. So, yeah, I think one of the, uh, the first meetings he had with Brendan Rodgers, what do we need to change? He says, I need to train every day and we need to be fitter. So it did radically change it. But um, whether or not it was the right or wrong way, it was just a completely different mindset.
0: The team crashed out of the Champions League to Maribor that season in the qualifiers. You came on at halftime in the second leg. But the general mood of the camp seemed a bit negative. Could you tell after that night that there could be challenges ahead?
2: Um,
1: I can remember one game. I don't know if it was a Champions League game. It was a European game anyway. And it was early on in Ronnie's management career. And I can remember the dressing room being quiet and stale and we'd been beat. And Dermot Desmond and Peter Lawwell walked in the dressing room. And I can honestly thought, I thought, God, he's going now. Like, the, he's he could be on his way. Do you know what I mean? So I thought, that's a bit, you know, a bit like a thing. But it, it wasn't so much that, you know, there was a lot of people that got Ronnie bought in himself and, you know, um, tried to put his own stamp on it. And like I said, we were very, very close to becoming... A top team, a good team, but it, it never felt like we were on the verge of, I don't know, radicalising this team and taking it to a new level. You know, it were, you know, the probably nail in the coffin was Rangers when they were in the uh, lower leagues beating us in the, uh, in the cup there at Hamden.
0: It's rumoured as well that you didn't enjoy the best of relationships with Ronnie Dyla. It's, it, it did seem to be repaired midway through the season though, when he gave you a new two year extension is it true that Dyla initially had reservations about offering you that deal
1: yeah well there's, there's no question yeah i don't think there would have been any hesitation you can't go from winning all the accolades of player of the year celtic player of the year sports writers player of the year scoring 30 plus goals in one season to then thinking right you're finished you're done you know it was it was just a different direction that he wants to go in i don't think he wanted to have me in the team but I, I do believe that I had something to offer Celtic. You know, I think about the one of the most memorable moments was scoring against Rangers. You know, in the semi-final. You know, well, yeah. Just I, I always thought I had a role to play at Celtic. You know, I wasn't finished. I'd not had major injuries or anything like that. Would scupulate that it was just, um, yeah. You know, he wanted his his own stamp on it, and whether he wanted me in or out the team, I was just in a, a position where. I was a decent player at the time, so it was, it was difficult to try and force me out, really. And I think it was probably peer pressure from the hierarchy above him and also the Celtic supporters because, you know, I think they, at the time, adored me, yeah.
0: You certainly were and still are a fan favourite. That season, you go on to win the League and Cup double. Of course, you mentioned Inverness game where you could have been treble winners, but for a ridiculous refereeing decision, that didn't quite happen. The next season, though, the club found it quite hard to replicate the same form. Did you feel you should have beaten Malmo to qualify for the Champions League? And would it have been different thereafter?
1: Yeah, strange. because we got, I think we got to an incredible start. I mean, maybe Charlie moore on the bench. And uh, just, you know, thinking this is going to be us. Uh, I think Lee Griffiths scored a, you know, great goal. But it was, it was the fact that, um, can you remember, it was a Joe Ingeberg, wasn't it? that never really had any impact on Celtic at all. A player that you wouldn't go, we need to sign him all my life, what player he is. Just kind of went under the radar and then obliterated us. Just like... And it was just... uh, Yeah, it was so disappointing because, like I said previously, you know, reservations about how the next person were going to come in to replicate the Barcelonas, replicate, you know spot at moscow games replicate you know these big european nights and to then lose to people that he thought we should be beating them was right something's not right you know it, it weren't just me it were, you know it, were, it needed
0: sorting so celtic enter the europa league group stages and start off reasonably well with draws against and venerbahce it's been well documented in the press that you weren't too happy about being brought off that night in Norway against Mold. Was there a particular background to that incident or was it just sheer frustration that you'd scored to bring us back into the game mm-hmm. and you were taken off?
1: Yeah, all I wanted to do, because I, you know what, we're in a group stage. This wasn't a home and away like last 16 um, And I knew he was going back to his hometown. I knew that we were were frustrated in the fact that I thought we're playing against Maldives, we should be beating them. Uh, But yeah, I thought right, okay, we've got half a chance here. Scored the goal, and the only one thing that really triggered me was the the outcry from the Celtic supporters of what the hell, like what you doing? You know, real anger and uh, just exploded in me. I suppose something. And I've told my you know my kids and many other professionals that I've played against and tried to give advice to, you know, young people, you know, that, that night that you see me do that was completely unacceptable, really, really unprofessional, something that should have never have been happened, should have been happened behind, you know, closed doors and all the rest of it. But it was just a an outcry of, I suppose, just frustration and the fact of, and when I spoke to him afterwards, it was it was bringing me off to go more defensively to not be humiliated. He didn't want to concede more goals. Where I've been brought up with Celtic, we're going to score more goals. We're playing against an inferior team towards. We're playing as a team that we should be in. Why why would you accept losing two or three one when we've got an opportunity to get to three two three three? Why accept defeat? And I couldn't cope with that. It just infuriated me.
0: Was it our a- Cost up in the dressing room after with John Collins, John Kennedy, and Ronnie?
1: Um, not so much, no. I mean, John Kennedy just, yeah, he had a, a, a bit of a piece and just out of order and shouldn't have done that. And I, I, knew, I knew I were out of order. There weren't a great deal that I could have said in that dressing room that would have said, I, I apologise. But yeah, Ronnie were angry, team were angry, everyone were disappointed, we'd not performed, Celtic supporters were disappointed. But it were, it, were, it needed sorting out very, very quickly afterwards. You know, we, we needed to um, solve something out. But uh, I think the next game was with Dundee United at home. Um, I played in that, scored another half-decent goal and came up and gave him a big hug. And, you know, hopefully everything got sorted then. But I, d- I don't know if, whether or not there were too much water under the bridge, as
0: you'd say. Because the next day, it was also well-documented that, the club had asked you to apologise and that came out via the club website. Were you surprised at the media outcry after that incident?
1: Um, you know, when you do something that's of that nature, that's, like I said, on national and European TV, that I, need, I needed to apologise, I need to say, sorry, this is out of order, you know, I'm a, I'm a father of three, I would never advise that, you know, showing that sort of anger and, and temper is, you know, is unacceptable. There's no question about that. Um, but it was something that I can't take back. I've, I've done it now. You know, it's, it's one thing that I lost my temper. And there's not many times that I have lost my temper in my 17, 18 years of playing football. But, yeah, something that I deeply regret and should have never happened. And you know what? In hindsight, looking back, I should have just bit my lip, put my tracksuit on and sat back.
0: What do you think, generally speaking, went wrong that season for Celtic compared to the optimism of the second half of Diala's first season. Um,
1: I really don't know. It's very difficult to put you know a, a real pin on it, but I would say the the training regime was wasn't up to where you know you were on the park long enough, which means then you're not physically fit enough to to reach the maximum level of where you need to be to compete at that level. You know you, you've like I said, you've only got to look at the the you know, the cup game at Hamden when, you know, a Rangers team that were full of players that, you know, wouldn't even get a a game for us that dominated us, overran us, overpowered us, you know, ran us into the ground. And, you know, being such a passionate Celtic player that I wanted to win and that determined sitting on the bench and not being even offered the chance to go on, you know, I never even came on in that game. I just sat there and had to just watch it. And it was, Agonising because obviously I felt sorry for the boys that had to take the penalties, felt sorry for the boys that had put all that effort in. But, you know, I do believe that there was something on the horizon that needed to be changed. And well and behold, you know, Dermot Desmond pulled out that big, big checkbook and yeah, went and got the man that actually bought some of the best days of my Celtic career. Without actually playing for Celtic, an incredible insight into
0: a top coach. I wanted to touch on that specific afternoon at Hampden Park before moving on to, as you say, some of the best halcyon days of your Celtic supporting life because you're a supporter now. Um, going into that game against Rangers, was there a particular flatness? Because I, I seem to remember going to that game feeling I'm not confident for some reason. I don't know why. And what was the dressing room like after? I mean, that game, you had Patrick Roberts missing an open goal. There was a general turgidity in the squad, it just seemed that it was written in the stars to lose that game. What yeah. do you think? What, why was there a flatness, do you think?
1: I really don't know. I don't know. It's, it's an incredible position to be in because, you know, it weren't so long ago that obviously I was at Hamden scoring against Rangers and, you know, could have been could have been five, six against, you know, that team. Um, humiliating, you know, on some aspect of that's how it could have been. And scoring against Rangers at Ibrox, scoring against Rangers at Celtic Park. And then to see a flatness and a, you know, a disappointment, you know, I have been involved and I started a game against Rangers in the, um, in the cup final. And, you know, when we went to extra time and Jelovic scored an extra time and feeling dejected and, you know, disappointed for me, my family, the, you know, of course the supporters, but there was one thing that lived with me through, through, through that experience and, you know, listening to the music and seeing the confetti, the red, white and blue and listening to them celebrating and lifting the trophy. I just, you know, a mental thing of my my own professionalism. This ain't happening again. No, I'm going to, you know, not happening again. And obviously to be having to sit there and watch a game unfold of 90 minutes and then 30 minutes of extra time, then penalties and have no impact on it. And then obviously get beat. As a player, you know, I would gutter for the boys. So disappointed. But I, d- I did feel that something was on the horizon, that something needs to change.
0: That's widely accepted as being the final nail in Ronnie Dylas' coffin. So Ronnie Dylas leaves and Brendan Rogers arrives. Could you believe it when you heard the news?
1: Incredible. I thought, wow. Wow. Like um, that, that's, that's a statement, that is. That's, that's a real, real commitment um, I didn't think that it was going to come in and do what he achieved, but my god he he got the the full back in from Dermot Desmond, the full back in from Peter Lawwell, the amount of money that was at his disposal, not just for squad but for the training facilities, um the professionalism inside the the dressing room um it was it was different level, different grade and I can remember speaking to the uh, couple of the secretaries and even they said he's demanding more from them. You know, he had that impact of a, this is how it's going to be. If you want to be a top professional club, this is how it's run. You don't just have a squad of 20 players and expect it to work. As soon as I leave my office and everything I pass and do has to be top notch. You know, he changed all the dressing room up in his, you know, in in his quarters and just just added expertise and just luxury. You know, I've, I've never felt carpet as thick as what in his office. It was phenomenal. I had to take my shoes off to walk in his office because it was beautiful. (laughs) Just luxury.
0: You mentioned that it's some of the best memories of your time at the club. Why was that, Chris?
1: Uh, An insight to how hard it is to be at that level. You know, um, his dedication, his work ethic. um, You know, I know he's obviously got a wife and kids and all the rest of it, but that was almost... Almost second to football. I've never seen that really. I know people are dedicated at work, and I, I suppose seeing sometimes that you, you know you, you you do shape twice a week, you do boxers, you do a bit of shooting and finishing. And then you know if you win on Saturday or they play well, we didn't play well or whatever. He was regimented. Every training session I had a thought process of the next game or improving players. It it took you know players aside. Everything was mapped out, and I didn't train. All the time of the first team, you know, there'd be times where numbers would pop up and the likes of me, Effie Ambrose, Emilio Esgeris, Scott Allen. We'd, we'd have our own little training thing. There'd be me, Jozo Siminovic. It were like, he utilised the whole training facility. So first team uh, injured, uh, you know, p- players on the the edge of getting involved or it would just, it was f- a phenomenal setup. And the people that he brought into the club were just as professional and probably would have jumped through fire just to be a part of it and like I said it just it just took it up a notch and obviously when you've got the backing of money as well bringing in the likes of Patrick Roberts, um, Scott Sinclair, you know we had um, Moussa Dembele you know players that were you know good wages people that were uh, top top players and you you have the blend of that with likes of Stuart Armstrong that's you know a 10 million pound player we actually added that, Kieran Tierney 25 million pound player Patrick Roberts obviously got bought for 15 million. Celtic were a proper team with a value of minimum over 100 million quid without even breaking sweat, and that's why not only did they go and beat in that season, but absolutely obliterated the um, the domestic league.
0: Kieran Tierney is a player who, when he first broke through, it wasn't very apparent. He was quite slight. It wasn't very apparent he was going to be in the first team for a sustained period. Do you remember his first training session and were you surprised at how good he was?
1: No, you know what, Kieran Tierney has never been a, a player that stood out for, for me in terms of training. Um, he was a player that I thought was incredibly genuine. That he, he, you, you got the feeling that he, he felt as if it was he won the lottery to play for Celtic that it was a luxury for him to play there. He played for free. It, it, you know, he, he, he were playing with, you know, people that he idolised in terms of Brownie and, you know, he'd, he'd come through the youth ranks and he were rubbing shoulders with Neil Lennon and Alan Thompson. And, you know, it was just, it was something just, it were a dream for him. And then he got, obviously, he did really well. One thing that stood out with Kieran Tierney is when he went into a match scenario situation, you got the gist that it was athletic, it was dedicated, it was a good defender, and no bullshit. Just loved the tackle, loved the physical side of things. A Celtic man through and through, and, yeah, just a, a tireless worker. I can remember him being involved in a training session where he was in the indoor place on an artificial 4G, and he went in for this challenge, and he didn't hesitate in going in there, and the crack that he heard from his shin was just like, oh, my God. Like, KT, why are you flying in like a, a lunatic? But he just sat there and I went, mate, you're right, you're right. He says, Yeah, it's gone, it's finished. I've just heard it, it's gone. And then it came back months later and then did exactly the same again. Went flying into a challenge and crack, he went, I think I've done it again. Like, KT just, but that never left him. Just odd tackling, odd, you know, never going to mess about, never going to be this one that's going to back off from anything. He was just a very, very determined kid. And I don't think for one minute that he ever thought that he wanted to leave Celtic. I don't think he ever thought that. And I think the door will be definitely open for him if at all possible he can come back and play for Celtic. It will be phenomenal.
0: You enjoyed a brief spell on Hibbs shortly after Rodgers arrived. Mm-hmm. How do you? was well, it being reunited with your old gaffer and teammate, Neil Lennon?
1: Yeah, well, you know what? We were we were supposed to be boarding a plane to go to Dubai for the um, the winter break. And uh, I can remember Lenny ringing me up and he says, listen, it's up to you. He says, but I need a favour. We come on loan. It's four or five games. And um, he says, you'd really do me a turn. You, 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 he said, we can have a real push and get promoted. I'm like, I'm supposed to go in Dubai. He says, well, we've got Greenock Morton this weekend. <laughs> so I said, right. I said, I'll see you at Greenock. <laughs> So, yeah, it was brilliant. And, I, you know, I love being back with, like I said, Parks and the gaffer. It was brilliant. I really enjoyed it. Great bunch of lads. Um, obviously, seeing a new, you know, a young John McGinn coming through. Um, some lads there that were top good professionals, you know, good lads. And the fact that I could help them out with, you know, a, a goal or two, it, it, um, you know, it played, played a big part that, obviously, they got
0: promoted that year, which was brilliant. You leave Celtic to a standing ovation from the whole stadium. That must have, must have been amazing. How do you look back on your time at Celtic?
1: Yeah, phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. I, I I really do hate the fact that I didn't have the opportunity to play for longer because, again, it's just... It's, it's, it's an absolute dream. And you know what? You do take advantage of... Well, you, you take advantage of the privileged position you are to walk out in front of them supporters because you don't get it anywhere else. It's phenomenal. I played in the Camp Nou. I played... Um, at Old Trafford played at the Emirates you you don't you don't get that sort of atmosphere and you only have to look at the quotes from you know the Barcelona greats about actually playing at Celtic Park there's nothing like it you ask Rio Ferdinand's Paul Scholes nothing like it and to have that week in week out I know the Champions League games are special and the Rangers games are special but you know to do that week in week out and have you know my last year of my you know my um, my contract there where I ended up having four epidurals and then, obviously, I had the back operation, which I never got the chance to, you know, play for Celtic in the league. But they were doing so well, it would just... I don't know. Whenever, whenever Celtic are doing well, it's brilliant. It's, it's, you know, it's ideal. Just go on. Yes, let's just keep rubbing it in. But it's been a little bit more difficult these last four months.
0: Do you still consider yourself a Celtic fan? And post-coronavirus, will you get up to a lot of games?
1: Um, yeah, definitely. I'd love to come up for a game. And you know what? One of the greatest um, experiences that I've had was um, I was able, because whenever obviously you play for Celtic, everyone knows who you are in and around the, in the, in the ground. So whenever I was either injured or not a part of the squad, you're, you're behind glass. You're in the players' lines. You're with your kids, you know, they're having steak pies and you're trying to sort everyone out. It's just, and I can remember um, Celtic played into Milan. And I said to my pal, I said, I'm going to put a beanie hat on, I'm going to get hat on. And big coat, I said, we're going up into the stand behind the goal. And um, it terrified me. I was on the front row behind the goal. So when you come out of the stadium, you know, on the right-hand side. Um, so I was up there behind the goal. And I, it's the first time in my life I thought, is this stadium secure? Because it was bouncing. I was like, oh my, like, you know, grabbing people. This is moving. It's crazy. I thought, right, that's where I need to be now. And this is, you know, like when Lee Griffiths goes in the stadium or Scott Brown, difficult because obviously you have to wear tashing glasses, but it would be amazing if I could just be a part of that, you know, get involved in that Green Brigade and just witness all that chaotic and incredible atmosphere.
0: See, I just wanted to ask you, finally, Chris, so obviously your family became Celtic fans as well. Lisa became heavily involved with the foundation yeah. and... My friend John once was at Rugby Park on a freezing cold Friday night and he sees someone who looks very like you and he goes, Yeah hey, boys, that's Chris He's he's over there. It turned out to be your dad, Apparently, <laughs> apparently looks very like you. The double of me, yeah. You know what? The only thing that he lacks about
1: me is his bold. He's got a full <laughs> chimney head. He lost his ear about 26, 27. I've still got luscious locks. So <laughs> I got my mum's jeans with that one. But yeah, he is, the, he is the absolute double of me. So unlucky for him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You've done some media work since retiring from football. What are you doing for yourself now? And what does the future hold for Chris Commons?
1: The future? Well, obviously, coronavirus has certainly put a um, perspective on life. And like I said earlier on the show, what actually means to, you know, about yourself. But... Yeah, I'll still be doing a little bit of media stuff. Um, it's not something that I'm massively passionate about. You know, you've got to be brutally honest at times. You've got to um, take a, probably a, a bit of abuse about saying it. You know, you, I, am, I am what I am. I've never kind of brushed anything up. You know, I'm not one to try and please people about saying certain things. Um, I try and be honest. Um, but yeah, my good lady, she's got a... Uh, hey there, mate.
0: I still am, yes. It's kind of cutting out. That's that's better.
1: Yeah. So, do you want that full question again?
0: Yeah, we can do it again.
1: Yeah, I will not sure how much you got old because you're
0: frozen. Oh, cool stuff. Um, So, you've done some media work since retiring from football. What are you doing with yourself now? And what does the future hold for Chris Commons?
1: Um, The future holds, I'm not sure. Obviously, we touched on it earlier on about the the appreciation that you have for family, health, um, you know, time on your side with whatever things happened in the pandemic. It's been, you know, a very, very difficult situation for a lot of people. But um, well for me personally, I want to try and spend as much time as I can with my children. You know, being a professional footballer for 17 years, it's been one thing that you don't get a to chance to, to do. So I've got the opportunity to do that. Um, my good lady is still very much, pursuing a lot of things in charity work and trying to do things on a on a scale with obviously Celtic as well as other charities. But yeah, she's she's got her own little business that's going and yeah, we keep ticking over and we're doing good things with that. So future old. i am not been no Celtic manager, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> golf
2: constantly.
1: I go, yeah, I'd love to play golf, but he knows it's <laughs> not even open.
0: <laughs> well, whatever the future holds for you, I'm sure you'll make a success of it. Chris Thanks very much for joining us here at Not the Ninety Two. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: No worries at all. Thank you very much for inviting me, and I can't believe you have managed to get through. What was it? An hour's worth of chat with me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks very much, Chris. Cheers. No
1: problem, mate. Speak soon.
0: See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye bye.